I would say to myself, I'm gonna write a biography about this guy. But I kind of had to come by the confidence, like, okay, is this a good idea? Is this a big magazine article? Is it really a book? I had to really look in the mirror and say, you can do this. So one night you're drinking in your favorite bar and caveat, this, this episode's about writing. So all stories about writers always take place in a bar. Your favorite children's book was probably written in a bar. And this guy comes in, sits down next to you, and he starts telling you this great life story. It's, it, it's so good that you're thinking, this is the best article or, or documentary just sitting in front of me. I've got to write all this down. And then the end of the night happens and you forget everything. But not for our guest today. That's Keith Ryan Cartwright. He is somebody for the past 30 years has made a living being a storyteller, a journalist, and an author. Whether it's covering music, Hollywood, being the head writer for a national sports agency, to his now upcoming book, Black Cowboys of Rodeo, Unsung Heroes from Harlem to Hollywood and the American West, Keith is there to tell you a story. So in this episode of Creative Mind, we're gonna get into the process of how Keith came about writing, finding the story, and what it takes to get that story to completion. So do us a favor and hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. And now here's my conversation with Keith Ryan Cartwright. I knew I was going to become a writer when I was eight years old. That December on, on the 22nd, I turn eight years old. On the 23rd, I get my first desk and a typewriter for, for Christmas. And I have a picture of me opening the typewriter and the reaction on my face, the expression. And then I have a picture a few hours later, dressed up like I was going to work at the desk. I'm getting ready to type for the first time and I'm 51 now. And so I've typed something or done some part of storytelling every day since I was, since I was eight years old. There was never a doubt that I was going to be a storyteller. Now, I had no idea how that was, how to make that happen. And so originally, originally, my fallback plan was I'd be an architect. And to me, <laughs> I, I'm laughing really hard because almost every single person we have interviewed who does something different than what they started on, what they started on was architecture or they wanted to be an architect. <laughs> yeah, well, because I really think that that architecture and writing are very parallel, you know? So when you're designing a house, you need a foundation. So when you're writing a story, you need a foundation. And then whether whether you're going to have five big windows in the living room and it's going to be well lit or whether you want that well lit room to be on the back side of the house so people in the front aren't looking in or all the little things, you know, how big are the bedrooms? Where are the light sockets? Where are you going to locate the master bathroom? All those are the little details that you would read in a feature story, in an article. And so the thought of conceiving the design of a house and the thought of conceiving the structure of an article, to me, are very part and parcel. It was focusing on the same part of my brain, or I was using the same part of my brain to do either, either one of those. 
I was born and raised in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You know, it, there wasn't really a lot of a lot of push to become a writer, you know, or a sport to become a writer. So originally, like when I got my typewriter, I would open up magazines, not and and at the time it's strange. It, they weren't books. It was always magazines that I enjoyed reading at the time. And I'd open them up and I would, I would put them on a little tabletop easel. And so it's open and I would retype the article. So I would, as I'm reading the article and I couldn't look away, I didn't have my hands on home row or any of that. I would, I would read and then I would type the sentence. And one thing that I noticed that, that I wasn't, I had no idea then, but I, figured it out later on was some articles were really easy and came naturally for me to type. And some of them felt like I was laboring through, but some of them felt really difficult to type and some of them felt very easy. And what I was discovering is without knowing it, the direction of like what my voice as a storyteller was going to eat ultimately become before I ever realized as a writer you have to have a voice and it wouldn't be for years I mean I was even writing professionally before I had an editor Tim Gianni I had turned in a story one time and and he said hey Kiefer great story you turned in and you turned it in early I I I think you might want to take another crack at it I think you're trying to be too and then whatever it was he said he goes I like your voice. I like your stories when they're in your voice. And I was like, what, what, what's my voice? How did what you, you mean? I, I, I wrote it. That's my voice. Right. But what was strange is while I wasn't consciously aware of my voice, I was aware that that day I did try to write different. I did try to be something else when I, I was, I put myself in a different headspace when I wrote that. Per I wish I could remember the article and, and have it tabbed, but I, you know, I, I don't, I just remember the lesson, not the actual worksheet, if you will. So I think anybody who's written, you write, if you write angry, you write happy, you know, you've watched, you know, a whole bunch of movies and then immediately you, you, that style is coming out of your fingers. It does change how you write. I'm okay when people say he's a writer and I will sometimes actually just say I'm a writer more times than not. I'm a storyteller. So storytelling is the same, the foundation of it, the structure of it, whether you're writing for a magazine, a newspaper, writing a book, working on television, like you and I did together, a movie or a documentary. It is about telling a story, a beginning, a middle and an end, having the right characters, having all the all the richness of what makes that character or that story or that scene stand out you just present it differently so how do you look at storytelling when you're writing the magazine articles that you you is your bread and butter when you're doing an interview for a newspaper or a magazine or a website article it's all about listening as much as you need to be prepared, it's unconscionable to sit down this day and age to interview somebody and not know who they are. You know, with, with everything's online, you know, you, gotta, you have to know something, but you also have to be very open to what you're going to learn about them. 
you know, you, you don't know everything about everybody. And, and so storytelling begins with, it begins with listening, whether I'm writing about rock and roll or I'm writing about the PBR. It, it's all about, it's all about listening. You know, when I packed my, my bag and moved to Los Angeles and, and I really thought as a writer at that point, I'm going to write about music and entertainment for the rest of my life. That's what I thought I was going to write about. And I also thought I knew, like, I know what I'm writing about, you know, because I was a fan of music. My cousin was in a, in a band signed to a major label I toured with that band back home in Wisconsin three, four times a year. I would rent out VFW halls and promote concerts. And then I would write about as previews, I would write about my concerts for local, for local music magazines. You were your own press agent. I was my own. Yeah. Yeah. I was, it was one-stop shop, you know? And so I felt like, I felt like I knew what I was writing about from various vantage points and but you still have to listen you know you still learn about people or situations when you're when you sit down to do an interview with 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 any anybody you know and then when I went when I ended up at the PBR then I absolutely, I remember them in the interview asking me, what do you know about our sport? I don't want to gloss over some of the music stuff because I think that that stuff is fun because I think that is really where you, you, you got your chops. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, being a working writer before we get into, you know, PBR and, you know, your book, The Black Cowboys of Rodeo, because we're going to spend the most time on that. But, you know, when you came out to L.A., Nirvana's Nevermind album was was out by the time I got to Los Angeles in 92. I mean, I wrote about some heavy metal, but even then I was I was I was writing about Black Sabbath and and Dio and I wrote a Metallica article. I mean, I was writing I I didn't cover a scene if you will. I I covered I just covered music. Well, well how does that work? Cuz I mean, I, a lot of people, you know, say, I want to be a writer. So I've said that, you know, we spent on the podcast, we spent a lot of time talking to children's books, writers, because, hey, a lot of people think it's easy to write a children's book, because uh, it's only 50 words. When somebody goes, I'm going to be a writer, and they pick up their bag, and they pick up their, their typewriter, or their laptop, and they go and be a writer, say, I'm going to be a writer. What kind of work are you actually out there trying to get? And I know that's a tough question. Okay. Everyone has a, has their own access point in. Mine actually came when I was still in Oshkosh. I was riding my my bike down Main Street, and when I say I was riding my bike, um, I was riding my bicycle. <laughs> my Schwinn. My yeah yeah. I was riding my bicycle down Main Street on the sidewalk, and I passed a bar that had a lot of live music at it called B and B Tap not there anymore anyway the foyer was an outdoor foyer so like the front of the building kind of dipped in and that's where the door was and as I went past I noticed out of the side of my right eye that there was a bundle of paper newspapers and the bundle was still tight and shut and it was not the daily paper so I I pulled the strip and popped it open and it was called night 
Sights and Sounds. It was a weekly free entertainment music magazine from Madison. Okay, so the equivalent to a Village Voice or an LA Weekly or something like that. A free weekly. And so I rolled it up or folded it and I stuck it in my back pocket and I continued riding my bike home. And when I got home, I opened this thing up and mostly it was filled with advertisements for bars and entertainment and nightlife in Madison, Milwaukee and Northeast Wisconsin, where I was, which is kind of the green Bay area. So it was covering where all the people live in the state. And, and so there would be like, listings for big concerts and bands playing in bars and all that kind of stuff. And then there was some random little preview articles and few stories. And some of it was national bands and some of it were regional and local bands. There was some movie reviews and album reviews. It it was just, it was a music magazine. It was a weekly music magazine. And now mind you, it is at that point, it's, I, I believe 1990. Okay, so not only is this before cell phones and the Internet or anything like that, most people don't even have caller ID. So I call the magazine, but I don't I know I'm going to ask some ignorant questions, so I don't tell them my name, who I am. (laughs) I just call and I get I get the one of the assistant editors on, on the phone and I'm asking some questions saying I'm up. I'm up in the Fox Valley area. I saw your your magazine. It's new to us. Is it is it really new? And they said, "Well, we're kind of new, but we're this is our first issue up in Northeast Wisconsin." Man, I'm, we're really this is great that someone saw it. We're glad it, it's being seen. And I said, "Yeah, I'm really interested in uh, contributing." And they said, "Great. We don't have a writer up there. We'll be we'll definitely be in need of of some writers." send send us a, a resume and and three clips and we'll see what we can what we can do <laughs> i thought i knew what a clip was but i wasn't sure now i get on i get back on the phone and i call my daily paper and i tell them i'm a, even though i was i had just i had graduated i tell them hey i'm working on a school project and i'm defining some different terms wow. i know what a clip is but i'm curious as a writer how would you specifically define clip? <laughs> she told me awesome. what the clip was and why it got its name, like literally clipping the article out of the paper. And so then I was assured I did not have a clip. So then what I did was two cities away was a community college that had a student paper. So I called the student paper and I introduced myself I tell my, cause I need to, I need the article to be with my name. I tell, you know, Hey, my name's Keith Ryan Cartwright, blah, blah, blah. Really want to contribute to the, to the school paper, but I'm only interested in writing about music. And they said, great. That's, that's, that'll be fine. Did you have any ideas? And I said, yes, <laughs> I have ideas. And how fast can you publish these ideas? Exactly. Exactly. And that, because I, I, I needed three of those clips. So anyway, I ended up writing four articles for the student paper before they realized I wasn't a student. And then they told me I could no longer write, but at least I had four articles. You, you outdid yourself. You went, you went above and beyond. 
Well, because I, I knew, I knew they weren't, they weren't great. <laughs> so, so I 86 the crappiest of the four, of the four. And I sent those three and, but I, and obviously I didn't have, I didn't, I still didn't have a resume. So I just wrote a cover letter with the four, with the three clips and I, and I sent it in and they never said anything. And so they gave me, they, they gave me an assignment, you know, and, and before I knew it, you know, I was, I was interviewing Don Dockin and other people who were in bands that were coming to Wisconsin. How, how, how much was that first article? Do you remember how much you got paid? Five dollars. <laughs> That's not bad. That's not bad. It doesn't matter when you're starting out. It doesn't matter who you write for. It doesn't matter if it's a terrible publication. Just be the best article in an otherwise terrible publication. You know what I mean? You just want you want the you want the clip. Nowadays, it's I. I think they still call them clips, but they're really not done in a clip form, you know, but, but you want, you want that writing sample to get the next gig and the next, and the next one. And it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like dating. If you're dating someone, it's always easier to, for someone else to be interested in someone when they know someone else is interested. If you're single, no one's interested. Right. Right. You're not, you're obviously not a psychopath if somebody likes you. Right. And so, well, well, I, I wonder about that. <laughs> True. But anyway, when it came to writing, I always had a publication to write for. And one one publication begets the next, begets the next and the next, you know. So but when I initially graduated, I did not want a full-time job. I didn't I didn't want to be beholden to one publication and be pigeonholed in writing in one area. And so I said, no, 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 I'm going to become a freelance writer. And then I started splitting my time between Nashville and LA. So how many years did, was that for you before the pro bull riding world began? Well, I wrote my first article in 1990. I, I graduated from MTSU and with my bachelor's in 2001 and then I was doing that freelance, what we were just talking about from, from just before then through 2007. So I was doing all, I was doing a lot of that freelancing. I had dialed it back a little bit, but, but from 2002 to 2000 through 2006, is when I wrote and produced a lot of shows with with Tom Oliphant, and that's when you and I kind of crossed paths. Right, so you do a lot of stuff point, for like country music television, and yeah, you doing any stuff with like Great America Country or anything like that? I did, I did some. I wrote, I wrote some segments for a guy named Stormy Warren, and then the last thing I did at in that block was I did a spinoff to American Idol for Fox called The Next Great American Band was an associate producer on that for a brief just a brief period of time and then that was right around the time that I when that ended that I had called a writer that I knew so a a guy that I had actually met in Wisconsin was now at that point an editor for MLB.com the major league baseball website and so I I call up my my friend uh, Tim 
And I said, Tim Spencer is his name. And I said, Tim, you know, I've been doing the TV stuff, blah, blah, blah. And he was always very excited and wanted to know like celebrity stories and interviews. And he was all infatuated with it, but I was coming disenchanted with it. And so I, I said, man, I know you and I want to, I, baseball is my favorite sport. I want to write about baseball. What, what do I have to do right now? I said, I know there's no reason for you or Major League Baseball to hire me to be a baseball writer, but what, what's the quickest route? What's, what's the surefire thing I could do for the shortest amount of time to be able to take advantage of the fact that I know you? And the conversation kind of led to nothing. And then about a week later or so, he calls me back and he said, dude, I don't know why I didn't think of this. And he was now living in Colorado Springs. And he said, a buddy of mine, I said, he goes, late at night when I'm done editing my last baseball game, there's a neighborhood bar like two blocks away from where I live that I go to to have a nightcap before going to bed. And he said, there's a guy that a friend of mine that I made and he worked for the PBR. He's always in there for a nightcap. And he was, he's an editor for them. And he was talking about the difficulty they were having hiring a writer. He said, man, if I tell him about you, I, I, I bet they would hire you. And so he told them about me and, and lo and behold, sight on scene, because I didn't fly in for an interview. I just, I did a, I did a two short interviews over the phone. So the one guy asked me two questions. The second guy asked me a question and it was, what do you know about our sport? <laughs> to which I answered, I could sit here and try to tell you what little I've learned in my research over the past couple of days, but it's going to be apparent to anyone who's on the inside that I only know the surface. I said, but one thing I've learned about the PBR is you, you guys market yourself as the fastest growing sport in, in, uh, in America and that you want to reach a mass audience, not, not a niche audience. And I said, the way to do that is to write human interest stories about the people involved in your sport. And in the background, they happen to be bull riders and stock contractors. I can do that. That's what I've done with musicians. I write about, I write about them as people and they just happen to be musicians and rock stars or fade rocks or whatever. So you, you become the, you know, the guy behind the, 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 the writer for professional bull riding and, and, and briefly explain to me when somebody says I'm the writer for professional bull riding, what, what that entails. Well, I mean, whatever sport you you follow, at that point, I'm the guy at the event. I'm I'm writing the game story. I'm writing the preview. I'm writing the injury report. I'm writing the profiles and the features. I'm following trends. I'm learning the part that I love the most and started to just focus on more and more and more was going going home with them or talking with their family or talking with their friends and writing about them as, as, as people, their, you know, the human interest story, you know, their life story. And so it, you're all those things because unlike football, baseball, basketball, Olympics, 
soccer to a degree or hockey where there's multiple writers at an event and there's and some publications have multiple writers even where you specialize in writing a certain aspect of that sport and i i was the only guy there it was a treasure trove of stories and so if i learned if i learned something i didn't have to rush to put it out the next day for fear that someone else is going to hear about it and, and beat me to the, like, I wasn't going to get beat. Like I was never going to have someone that's, that said, Hey, how did so-and-so get that story before you? I was the one getting the stories. And, and so then eventually after a couple of years, I end up in the production meetings with the, with the network that's broadcasting the event. And so I'm in the production meetings and interacting and became close with the broadcasters and pointing out to them, you know, storylines and little nuggets and little, little anecdotes for them to, to share. And then, and likewise, they would then reference my stories during the broadcast. And so we started to work really well together. And, and, and when I left and Justin Felisco stepped into that role he's done he's done the same thing he's built that relationship and it's and then it's sort of evolved a little bit a little bit more you know and and it was it really was the best job I've ever had and it I was, was gonna tough. say it's because it sounds like yeah you, you'd mentioned if you're a storyteller and anybody that's interested in documentary writing filming like you know the, the one question that always comes up is where do you get your ideas where do you get this information and if you're living with these guys i said it earlier you gotta listen and if and if you're not hearing something listen harder and open your eyes and really look at what's going on around you the stories are there and and so for the first couple of years i was still really i still really thought that 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 ultimately i would end up writing about baseball and so i had befriended a few writers that had that had covered major league baseball one in particular tracy ringlesby and he happened to actually uh, he was he was aware of rodeo he understood it he, he knew what i was doing and and i remember going to spring training and, and spending a couple days with him so i was doing all these things to 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 lay the foundation to try to make a transition you know baseball still there i still want to write for baseball i still want to write for baseball Early on, like in the first year or two, and until Tracy and I had gone to a couple games one day, and then we went to dinner, and he said, "Man, I don't get it." He goes, "I don't, I don't get it. Why, why do you want it? To, you, you've been, you've been with me for two days." He said, "I haven't sat down just one on one, no holds barred with anybody while you're here. Why do you want to do this? The access you have and the kinds of stories." that you get to tell and you want to be a uh, feature writer, man, like, why would you leave what you're doing? You don't, this isn't where you want to come. There are so many gatekeepers that keep us from the players and there's only going to become more and more and more gatekeepers. And, and so eventually you realize the grass isn't greener. It is really green where I'm at. And, and I started to really appreciate the people. I became a fan of the sport and I, and I really realized it's a pretty big treasure trove of stories. 
And even on the rare occasion that that somebody from the outside gets their hands on one of the stories that I may have been thinking about, there's 99 more. Well, let's talk about those 99. So you've got a book coming out called Black Cowboys of Rodeo, Unsung Heroes from Harlem to Hollywood in the American West, which covers 100 plus years of an experience that obviously not many people know about. What prompted you to start this journey about the Black Cowboys? So probably in my second year with the PBR, sometime in 2009, I think, Ty Murray, a nine-time world champion cowboy, introduced me to a man named Murtis Deitman. And Murtis was the first African-American to qualify for the national finals rodeo in Las Vegas. And he did, he, well, he rode in it in 1966. And then in 67, he finished third in the world. He, he qualified seven times in his career. So he, he did this at the height of segregation and the civil rights movement, you know, in, in what people would predominantly view as a pretty white sport. The average onlooker is going to think rodeo and they're just going to think, you know, white guys and belt buckles and, and, you know, the, the, a very stereotypical view yeah. of, of Southern culture. And, and they couldn't be, they couldn't be more wrong, you know, and, uh, and it's always the case <laughs> as always the case, you know, but as I got to meet Mur, like I wasn't even aware of free right at this point, just meeting Murtis and, and then I befriended him. And then, you know, the more I spoke to him on and off, the more I became enamored with him. And I would say to myself, I'm going to write a biography about this guy. I'm going to write a Murtis Deitman biography. But confidence. I kind of had to come by the confidence to like, okay, is this a good idea? Is this a big magazine article? Is it really a book? What is the book? Yeah, when you meet a great subject, you're like, this guy's amazing. I have to do something about it. But what does that mean? Yeah, you know, and, and so one, I had to figure out what does that mean? And two, really convince myself, look in the mirror and say, you can do this. And, and so as I was doing that, I'm talking to him. And when I would talk to him, he would say things like, have you talked to Bailey's Prairie Kid? Murtis, I have no idea who that is, but his name's Bailey's Prairie Kid? Sounds like, is he from Long Gone? He goes, oh, no, no, no. He's my buddy. He, he lives, he lives right here in Texas, man. I got to talk to him. You know, what about, what about Freddie Gordon? What about my former business partner, Cash? I said, who's Cash? He goes, Harold Cash. And then he started telling me about an all black rodeo in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. And then you find out that from the fifties on, there's been a, there's probably six or seven cities in Oklahoma that have that have been the home of all black rodeos. Wow. And Okmulgee is the only one still that they've hosted an annual all black rodeo in mid-August every year since 1956. Whoa. Okay. So that's some deep history. We're going back. Yeah. And then you meet Cleo Hearn and you find out, well, not only was he the first African-American cowboy to turned pro as a calf roper, which calf roping in rodeo is like being a quarterback in football. It's a very, very skilled deal because you not only obviously have to be handy with a rope, you have to be 
you have to be an expert horseman. So a lot of these guys that are in my in my book, they're not simply there because they're black cowboys. The ones I selected to profile in the book, they're there for their accomplishments. And so, for instance, Cleo, who I was talking about with, you know, he's worthy of being in the book simply for what he, he accomplished as a, as a calf roper. But beyond, when you go beyond that, he, right after he had turned pro, he gets drafted into the army and, and Kennedy is elected president. And now Kennedy wants to really push forward the civil rights bill. There's a lot of people who say whether or not he would have ever gotten to pass that civil rights bill or not, but there was a big job ahead of him. So big, there were many other areas that he could, that he could focus on it didn't have to just be that bill. And so he wanted to desegregate as many different things as he could. So for instance, the Secret Service was desegregated. And one other thing that was desegregated that, that Kennedy had control over was the Presidential Honor Guard, which at that time, the Presidential Honor Guard was all white. And so Kennedy said, that's, that's not going to be the case anymore. And so Cleo becomes one of the first two African-Americans named to the presidential honor guard, mostly because one proximity, he happened to be in the DC area when that conversation took place Two, he was college educated. He had gone to, he had gone to Oklahoma state. And so they named him to the presidential honor guard. He won the first, he was the second. However, Cleo becomes the first African-American to ever carry a casket as part of the honor guard in Arlington. And so he's a pioneer and a trailblazer in a far greater way. And so both those stories kind of come into play in, in my book. And then Cleo and his best friend, Bud Bramwell, they end up, they end up spearheading the first, the first ever all black rodeo in Harlem. And it took place September 5th, 1971. It'll be 50 years this year. And that's and just, when you say that, it's just, you know, you, you start putting two and two together. And you, when you look at maps, you think Harlem, which is in New York City, which is not a cowboy town, <laughs> there's a black rodeo. A, a rodeo of any kind is something of note. But then there's a Black Rodeo Association in Harlem. Those two form the American Black Cowboy Association. And then they end up partnering with a former politician from Newark, New Jersey, named George Richardson. Another bastion of, of, of cowboys, New Jersey. Right, which it is. I'm going to get to that. Okay. And so George, with, George gave them the political gravitas. George's wife... Ingrid Frank, who George is, George is African-American and Ingrid is not, she, she was, she's Jewish and she had escaped Nazi Germany into the United States. She met George, they ended up getting married. And so she's the publicist that publicizes this whole thing. And the four of them basic together, Cleo, Bud Bramwell, George, George's wife, Ingrid, and the four of them, they end up putting on this humongous all-black rodeo that was held on Randall's Island in the Harlem River at Downing Stadium, which is no longer there. It was over 10,000 people, and there was a parade that 
went from the Apollo Theater down Mar- what is now Malcolm X Boulevard, and then and then over over the over the Triborough Bridge onto Randall's Island and to the to the stadium. It was a three mile parade of cowboys on horses led by Muhammad Ali. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. So this is this is this is a massive event. To me, that event that event in seventy one that is the seminal moment of of black rodeo cowboys because of you have Muhammad Ali because of the fact that it's in the cultural capital of black America what that rodeo meant to Harlem in 71 when they knew like the Harlem Renaissance as well it, it that's a thing of the past it they're not quite into the what will become the crack epidemic, but Harlem is, is starting to decay. They need, they need some sense of some, they need to see some kind of heroes. And it, it was a big, big, it was a huge deal. And, and Muhammad Ali really solidified it when he agreed to, to go there for that. And your book starts off. I mean, you start off talking about Bill Pickett and, and, you know, I know nothing about, Black Rodeo, but he is the first person that comes up. And anytime you talk to anybody, Bill Pickett comes up a lot. Hey, did you know Bill Pickett? He was an African-American who was a cowboy. Like, really? Then you go through the whole history all the way up, as you were talking about, to the Harlem Harlem event. How did this project get its legs? How did it just start spiraling out for you? Well, like like I said, you know, I, I was going to write about Murtis, but Murtis kept telling me about other black cowboys. And I thought to myself, if I write a book about black cowboys and I only write about one black cowboy, even though he's my hero, and I think the world of Murtis Deitman, I'm afraid that too many people, if they come across the book, will view Murtis as an anomaly, when in fact... Black cowboys go all the way back to the end of the Civil War, you know, and and it, during the Civil War, it, you could say it really started with the Buffalo Soldiers, and then coming out right. of this. Okay, right, right. You had freedmen, who you know how free were they at that time, and and you really know how they what they thought of being free in the South, that they went west to the unknown, not knowing what would happen, and they wind up becoming cowboys, you know? And so during the old West, which is 1865 to 1895, that 30 year window, about a quarter of the West, the, the cowboys were minorities, not simply black cowboys, but minorities as a whole. And the majority of that quarter of the cowboys, they were black cowboys and they were working. They were learning how to, they were learning how to be horsemen and they were working cattle and they were pushing cattle up the Chisholm trail from South Texas to Kansas, to the rail, to the railroad. And then those, that cattle was getting loaded onto the trains and sent back East. Right. And so then there was a man, a man named John Ware. Now these stories aren't in my book because my book, really focuses on black cowboys of rodeo, not, not the history of black cowboys, but John Ware in the 1800s had been a slave in South Carolina. And then after being freed, he went to Texas and he already knew 
kind of how to ride a horse, he be, but he became an expert horseman. And for several years, he was pushing cattle up and down the, the Chisholm Trail. And what made him famous is he took 300 head of cattle. And instead of just going up the trail and stopping in Kansas and loading them on the train, he kept pushing north and took them all the way into southern Alberta. So he pushed them over the border into Canada. And that was that became the birth of the cattle industry in Canada. Oh, my gosh. Basically, the father of or the grandfather of or however you want to refer to him, you know, it was it was a former slave from South Carolina that that began the cattle industry in in Canada. And so in southern Alberta, if you look at a like a topographical map, you'll see there's a big ridge and it's called John Ware Ridge. I mean, wow, it is very distinct. It's it's big. You can't miss it. They they've recognized this man long before the U.S. ever recognized any black cowboys. Canada put John Ware on a on a Canadian stamp long before we ever put Bill Pickett on a U.S. stamp. And it's a shame that Bill Pickett's still the only black cowboy to have been on a been on a stamp. Why? And, and you know when you were telling me about this project, and I was reading through some of through some of the books. You know, people think of Americans, they think cowboys and Indians and they think Westerns. You have to remember that Hollywood popularized the Western at a time when it was, you know, Jim Crow, segregation, and then the Western series, you know, the TV series, you know, that's at the that's at the height again, the height of civil rights. And so Hollywood, quite honestly, they did not have the courage to put a black man on a horse and call him a hero. And so they wrote, they wrote African-Americans out of, out of all the scripts. And quite honestly, most of us, I say us, not necessarily me, because I do read books, but most of us don't read books to learn our history. We see it on television. We see it on a movie screen. And then that that's our visual reference to history. And so when it comes to the West and seeing something that happened long before we were there, that's our visual reference. And so for most people, there's no visual reference of minorities other than it was cowboys and Indians. And so the cowboys were, were the good guys. Right. Well, they weren't all good guys. <laughs> they weren't all white. We we're, weren't all white. We weren't all good guys. Yeah. It, and, and this took you... How many years to get to this? Well, so I never stopped researching. I'm I'm still introduced to new cowboys and still introduced to 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 new stories and and I can't not do the interviews. So even today, I'm still interviewing. And today we're you know three and a half years into this thing. But for the book itself, I did a total of about right about 500 interviews. Oh my gosh, over 150 different people. So some of those people I went back to two, three, four times, and for a total of, I'm just. I'm somewhere around 800 hours of recorded interview. So, I mean, that that was a question I was going to ask you, and I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, I'd written down, you know, how do you keep your momentum going on a project like this? 
Well, I I have no problem keeping the momentum going with the discovery. One thing one one thing that this project has ended up teaching me is I have no problem interviewing, you know, taking part in one interview after another after another and listening and being fascinated. I am curious and fascinated by people and and so I have no problem keeping the momentum going with the discovery and I do enjoy writing. I've found that the writing part of it is probably second to the research. Where I lose momentum is when you do 800 hours of interviews, you have to listen. The eight, not only listen back to the 800 hours, you've, you've, got to, you've got to transcribe the quotable quotes. You've got to transcribe the notes. You've got to figure out how am I going to organize it so that I can refer to when I need. That part of it can sometimes be daunting and laborious. So, so how, do you, how do you get through that? How is it, what are some tricks for that? There are no tricks. <laughs> Come on. At, at some point, at some point, it's work. There's work. I enjoy what I do, but it's work. And that's the moment when I'm reminded it it's it it's hard work, you know, and and you have to put it in. I mean, there's there's no there's not a trick. There's there's just there's there's not a couple of times I had former students I paid to do some transcribing, and and it it it's to no fault of their own. One thing I've come to realize is, um, and someone had told me it ahead of time, but I needed to discover on my own. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, you have you have to hear that nuance that that the big sigh where you're thinking where the person's going, maybe I should tell him, maybe I shouldn't, maybe yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. And that's also one of the reasons why for me going over and doing the transcription takes a while because sometimes I'm, I listen to them tell me an anecdote and I type it, not how it'll appear in a book or an article possibly, but kind of like I'm, I, I have, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I have a voice now as a, as a writer. And so I'm going to write it like that when I'm writing it in my own words, not quoting it, you know, so I'm not transcribing every little thing, you know, sometimes, sometimes they tell me something and I realize I'm never going to need that story, but they needed they needed to get that out for me to get them to get to what I needed to hear. Right. Yeah. You got to follow their breadcrumbs. Correct. And so that's where the interview process, you have to be willing to listen because sometimes you have to let them talk their way to the, to where you want to go, you know, and, and sometimes you, you can't be, impatient cut them off and say but this is what i want sometimes you just you have to let them do it other times you do get to a point where you you move them you move them forward you you physically put them in a new place so segue now as i'm going to wrap it up (laughs) so tell me this is book one i'm guessing of at least a dozen it sounds like you have so much information so Black Cowboys of Rodeo, Unsung Heroes from Harlem to Hollywood in the American West. 
is coming out when when's the release date you think it'll be uh pre-sales will be available probably may like somewhere around may 1st and then the book will be available actually available to be in your hands november 1st okay and what are the next projects because i know there's some there's got to be a couple of you know you yeah. can have all this information so i'm headlong in the interviews it'll be about the emergence of black stuntmen in hollywood in the 70s and i'll, I'll go into the 80s i'll talk a little bit about the present but i'm really going to focus on a 25 year window of 65 to the end of the 80s because i'm guessing some of these cowboys were definitely a handful of them yeah a handful of them go back and forth between those two stories and some don't but it is sort of how i came about that and then it's that's an untitled black stuntmen and stunt women project i don't have a title for that but that will be next and then after that i'll probably circle i think We'll, we'll see what happens with the Black Cowboy book. There could be a call for me to have to go back, revisit that project. Sure. I mean, I mean, just reading some of the stuff, it's it's cinematic. I mean, you know, the, the you know, I'm sure you're hoping that, you know, Hollywood comes calling or, or, or something of, the, of a filmed filmed event comes with this because it's I mean, you, you paint a picture that is, you know, so unique and so so vivid. It's, it's great. So I, I could end up revisiting that. I do have a handful of interviews done and some research just because I wanted to see if there was a there there for another idea that I had. And that one actually has a title. It, it's, it's called Cowboys and Inmates Behind the Walls of the Wild and Western History of Prison Rodeos. Anything else you want to promote? I'm all about the book. All right, man. So there you have it. That's what a career, a lifetime career really, as a writer, and storyteller looks like. And if you've ever dreamed about a career in art, design, filmmaking, more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise. And of course, these employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and of course, skilled creative professionals. At Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and of course, right now, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study, including film production, documentary filmmaking, game development, fashion, and more, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.